It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. We're starting off this episode in a way that I don't think either of us intended. <laughs> and this is something that we both feel uncomfortable about. But we wouldn't be in full integrity with who we are and the point of this podcast if we didn't get uncomfortable at times. Yeah, I mean, I'm exhausted right now. So there's that, right? And that's the other thing too, is like starting the podcast, I've realized is not about like performing for you, the listener. It's like, come as you are. And I feel like part of the lessons I'm learning in doing this podcast with Whitney is breaking out of this mold of, I guess, a way of being that I had embodied a lot on YouTube and social media and videos. If anyone's ever seen any of my videos out there on social, you know, for a long time, I felt like I had to be like, I'm in presenter mode now and I've got to get the energy up. And like, no, we're doing this podcast. I'm fucking tired right now. You know, I'm like, I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm physically exhausted. I haven't been sleeping well, but you show up anyway. And if we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation, like I feel like in a way this podcast, my hope at least, and I think Whitney, maybe you share it too, is that it mirrors an actual, it's a life conversation. We always say we don't like to do interviews. We don't like to interview each other. We don't like to interview guests. We like to sit down and have a conversation because even if you're tired, even if you're uncomfortable, even if you're exhausted, even if you don't necessarily have the quote right answer in the moment, you show up and you connect anyway. And I don't know, I guess that's my rant on the ethos of what we hope comes through in this podcast is you show up as you are, how you are, how you feel and connect and bring it, you know? So that's what we're all about here. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been learning a lot through the past few weeks. It is now mid-June, believe it or not. <laughs> it's nuts. Time is just, I guess, a continuously and throughout life ebbs and flows and our relationship with time changes a lot. But I certainly feel like during COVID, it's been reframing a lot. And during this time of uprising and striving for racial justice, I have had a lot of awakenings and a lot of time to reflect on my viewpoints, not just about race, but life in general and how we communicate, how we relate to one another. And what you're saying now, Jason, reminds me of a lesson I learned from watching what happened with Marie Forleo. And for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with that name, she's a really wonderful, respected entrepreneur. And I actually have not stayed up to date on what's been happening, but she was one of the first people I saw who was getting some backlash for how she responded to Black Lives Matter. And right around the time when the protests were starting, which was at the end of May, early June, at least in Los Angeles, it was right after, I actually don't know the exact date off the top of my head of when George Floyd was killed, but was it, do you know, Jason, do you know what date he was killed? Yeah, it was May 25th in Minneapolis. Oh, got it. Okay. So, I mean, that was a pretty quick time period of 
on the 25th, which was, do you have the date of the week? I just associate it with a Saturday, like a Saturday, which was that like the 31st, the 30th of May. That was when things really shifted for me. It was a Monday, Memorial Day. The 25th. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So basically the timeline was a Monday, the 25th, and then a lot started to build. And then I felt like it came to this point in this pivoting period on May 30th, again, especially for me. I remember that Wednesday, the 27th, things were starting to shift in Minneapolis and it felt very distant, but it started to really hit home for me on May 30th when the protests started to happen and the looting was happening in Los Angeles, but also conversations were really growing and shifting. And I saw this backlash to something that Marie Forleo had posted and tying it into what you just said, Jason, which was part of her response at first was that she and her team were not working over that weekend. And so they kind of were in a way telling their audience that they would get back to it on Monday. (laughs) And a lot of people were saying, it's so unfair that you as a white woman are using the weekend as an excuse not to take action because all of us who are fighting for racial justice, we don't get to take a break. We don't get to take the weekend off. And I thought that was such an important point to make. And I understand, you know, as business owners, we want to take breaks. But Jason and I are recording this right now on a Saturday afternoon. So the day of the week does not matter that much to me. Since I became an entrepreneur, I haven't really been able to use the weekend as an excuse. We don't work a nine to five schedule. We don't clock out. In essence, we're always working, except if we consciously decide to take a break. But sometimes the breaks are like a couple hours. They're not necessarily a whole weekend as some people have when they work certain jobs. So I want to thank you, Jason, for doing this despite feeling tired. And, you know, as podcasters, there are many times where we don't feel like we're in the mood to record something, but we do it anyways. We have to push through that. And that's uh, not a direct comparison to fighting for racial justice. It's a different thing, but in a way kind of relatable. And it ties into what I wanted to discuss here, which is moving through discomfort, whether you're feeling like you don't have the energy to do something, but you push through that anyways. It's uncomfortable to push through tiredness, right? It takes a lot of mindfulness and personal awareness to say, I don't really want to do this because it feels uncomfortable right now, but I'm going to do it anyways. And that's also true when it comes to our emotions. And what we want to start off this episode discussing is emotionally uncomfortable thing for both of us. And before we hit the record button today, I said to Jason, we should talk about it even though it's uncomfortable. We can't just like skirt around things or ignore things. And part of our mission with This Might Get Uncomfortable is that we want to share with you the conversations we typically have had offline, because I think a lot of the times it feels uncomfortable to publicly discuss things. And I know I've been working through this a lot through this last few weeks trying to figure out what I'm going to say. And to be honest, I have actually not said as much as I would like to because it feels uncomfortable. And almost every single day when I go onto social media, I wonder, have I said enough? Have I done enough? And I have these thoughts, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? And on one level, I think that that's actually not good for our mental health to constantly be feeling like we're not enough and we're not doing enough and we're doing things wrong. 
I don't want to subscribe to that mindset, but I still struggle with that. Even though on one level, I try not to put myself in this like right or wrong mentality. On another level, I'm used to that. That's a habit of mine. And it's been an interesting thing to observe my relationship with social media these days because I want to stand up and I want to show that I'm an ally. I want to be a good ally. I want to be a strong ally. I want to make a difference. I want to keep this movement going. But there are a lot of times where I hesitate because I don't feel like I know what to say. And it takes a lot of work to figure that out, right? I don't want to have a knee-jerk reaction and just post whatever's on my mind because I want it to be thoughtful. But sometimes we overthink things and then we don't actually end up doing anything because it becomes exhausting just to think about what we're going to say. It's analysis paralysis. Yes. Right. Right. And that leads me to the discussion that we want to at least touch upon lightly here on the show today, which is very uncomfortable for us. And it's something that we've already addressed a little bit. In previous episode, we did on cultural appropriation. It was really interesting because that episode came out, I think, the same week of George Floyd's death. Am I right, Jason? I think that came out probably on the 27th or something. Yeah, it was the last week of May that episode debuted. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. We didn't know when we recorded that episode. I think that was before George Floyd was killed. And we were just kind of discussing that because it was a timely thing in our lives. And We certainly did not plan it by any means. And in that episode, we talked about Thug Kitchen, which is a brand some of you may be familiar with. It's a vegan cooking brand. So they have books and a blog and social media and merchandise. And it's run by two white people, Matt and Michelle, who Jason and I have known since I think 2015 is when I first met them. I met them at a party. And I think you were there too, Jason, but I don't know if you actually met them at that same party. It was at Mooshoes in in Los Angeles. No, I didn't meet them till later. I remember I connected with Michelle and I don't know exactly how the arc of our friendship happened, but we're very close. And at this time, I, I haven't really talked to her that much. And there was no inciting incident that I can recall <laughs> for that. But for whatever reason, we just have not been in touch with each other for over a year. and. On a personal level, that's always sad to me. I like having people in my life, but it's definitely been interesting during the past few weeks because Thug Kitchen has been a very polarizing brand. They've been very successful in a lot of ways. They've been bestsellers of their books. I think they've had three bestselling books. They've had a really big audience on social media. They've been recognized on many media platforms and celebrities have shouted them out and to me, been a wonderful thing in a lot of ways for the vegan movement. However, their name has been the subject of criticism and debate for many years. And I don't remember exactly what we said in that episode. I think, Jason, you recall more of the words because you're reading the transcript recently. But I think what we touched upon there was that it was really tough for us. You know, most of my experience of Thug Kitchen came after I met Matt and Michelle. I remember finding out about their brands. I was definitely familiar with the brand before I met them. But so much of what I associate with that brand is Matt and Michelle as people. And I think part of the... I recently listened to Bryant Terry's interview on KCRW, and he talked about this. We will link to this in the show notes. So if you want to dive deeper into this, you can 
go to wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you find the show notes for this episode, we'll link to that KCRW interview that Brian Terry did, as well as some articles that he wrote, one of them, or maybe he only wrote one, but there was an op-ed that he did about six years ago. So that was probably in 2014, I suppose. And he brought up this concept of digital blackface or cyber blackface. And he talked about how he was affected by Thug Kitchen because many people got familiar with the brand without knowing who was behind the brand. And people like Brian assumed that the people that created Thug Kitchen or the person, actually, a a lot of people didn't know that it was run by two people for a while. It was just kind of this anonymous blog. And then the book came out and then the news came out that it was run by two young white people in their 20s, I think. I think they were in their 20s at that time. Anyways, it, it really struck people like Brian in a negative way because he assumed this whole time that it was somebody like a black kid, I think he said, like a black teenager or 20-year-old or someone like that who was using a lot of the terminology of Thug Kitchen to reach people in a different way to introduce them to plants. So for a while, I think the popularity of Thug Kitchen was like, hey, this is a really cool way to talk about veganism. And we're so glad that it's reaching a different audience and a different culture. And then when it came out what their identities were, people started to feel like that was cultural appropriation. Again, I don't recall very much detail. Jason, do you remember? I feel like you and I had a discussion about this before we met Matt and Michelle. Do you have any memory of that? No. My assumption was also to mirror what Bryant was talking about really quickly, Whitney. I remember in um, 2012, a friend of mine, a good friend who's an art director, composer, I remember the very first time I heard of them, she forwarded me their website. It was like, have you seen this? And I was like, interesting. Like, I remember being like, this is a fascinating take. So I remember seeing their blog in the beginning, in 2012. My initial impression was, yeah, the same as Bryant Terry's was like, this is some, you know, cool black kid somewhere, like using vernacular and language and black aphorisms to sell veganism. And I, I mean, I thought it was cool. I thought it was funny and I thought it was cool. And I had the same assumption he did. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember what I assumed. I guess to me, at this point in my life, I don't associate the word thug with a specific race. And yet, listening to Brian Terry's perspectives, I'm starting to learn more about the history of it and why people associate that word with kind of an urban Black person. And just the different term in that interview that he did recently, I actually felt like I was getting an education on this and how Matt and Michelle would use phrases that were often coming from Black music, and it felt like they were pulling from that. And, you know, honestly, (laughs) I don't know if they would do it, especially because we haven't been in touch with Matt and Michelle recently, but it certainly would be nice to talk to them about this. But where we're at right now is just based on our personal experiences. And as we said in the cultural appropriation episode, it's really tough when you know somebody, or at least you think you know somebody, and you see their side of things. And then you see like the world against them. And I felt defensive of Matt and Michelle because I really enjoy them as human beings. And I felt like I got to see their hearts and their intentions. And I thought they were doing a lot of great things for the vegan movement. And it's been interesting as these debates have come to the surface again, 
seeing the reactions and, and the cancel culture around it. And there are some people that are shaming them publicly and saying like, see, you've been ignoring us all these years and now you have to face the reality. You have to own up to your mistakes and all of that. And Jason and I have talked a lot about this offline and neither one of us are fans of cancel culture. And I'm certainly a big advocate for not shaming. I don't think shame is a good tactic at all. In fact, this is something I study a lot in my work and something that I've been spending a lot of time developing. I'm working on a new program specifically around shame. And I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, who does a lot of work on that too. And so I'm deeply immersed in that. And I'm also personally affected by it. And I can tell you from my research and from my firsthand experiences that shame is not a tactic that helps people make a change themselves. It actually hinders them more than it helps them. So it's gut-wrenching for me to see people attacking Thug Kitchen because, again, when I see the term Thug Kitchen, I'm thinking of the people behind it, Matt and Michelle, the people that I know. And it's like I feel protective over those people. But I'm trying to open up more and listen to the perspectives and try to understand them because I also don't want to take a side. I want to understand both sides. I want to give respect and honor to them. And especially during this time, it's so important for us to be allies for people of color and the Black people out there that have been struggling so much. I mean, we need to give them that stage. That's why Black Lives Matter is so incredibly important. And yeah, it's been an interesting emotional ride. And the reason that we decided to speak about this again today is because Matt and Michelle announced, I think it was either earlier today or last night, three hours ago, actually, <laughs> that they decided to change Thug Kitchen. And I have not read the post yet. Have you, Jason? Yeah, I actually wanted to pull it up really quick. Me too. I have, I have it up in front of me. Do you want to read it out loud, their Instagram post? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Skim it over. You don't have to read it word for word. It's pretty quick. So yeah, it was four hours ago, and the actual graphic post says, we're changing Thug Kitchen. And the caption reads, when we first launched TK in 2012, we wanted our name to signal our brand's grit in the otherwise polished and elitist food scene. Over the years, as our critics pointed out the racist connotations of two white people using the word thug, we tried to contextualize it by talking about our backgrounds and our beliefs. We realized, however, that whatever our original intention, our use of it reflected our privilege and ignored the reality that the word is assigned to black people in an attempt to dehumanize them. That's fucked up, and we're not at all what we stand for. We apologize. We recognize we need to do better. Our end game is to widen the table in our country's conversation around food and to add more chairs. We want our body of work to reflect inclusivity and empathy. In that spirit, we will change the name of our company and website, discontinue the use of Thug Kitchen as the title of all of our previous cookbooks, and closely reevaluate the content of each book. These changes are underway, but will take a while longer while we finish the work. We're serious about being advocates for change, and that starts with us. That I just want to commend them. <laughs> I mean, that is, I feel in awe of it because as we said, Jason and I have been following this development over the past week or two, but we've also been aware of it for many years. And I just feel like that takes an enormous amount of, I want to say like being humble, right? Humbleness is what I was going to say, but I don't think that's a word. But I mean, that's a lot of self-awareness and it is not easy to apologize first and foremost in such a public way. I mean, right now that post has almost 18,000 likes 
and they've got a huge audience there. And I'm sure they posted it on their Facebook where they have a bigger audience. I mean, they're going to be talking about this a lot. They have a podcast as well. And just they have a, a massive platform, right? So they're reaching millions of people with their message. And that's a lot of pressure. And it's also showing a lot of growth because they have been receiving this pressure for many years and stuck to their guns and did not want to change. And the fact that they're going to be changing the titles of their books, whatever that means, I mean, they're obviously going to have to go back and revamp everything that they've been doing since 2012, eight years of work. There was an interesting suggestion in that post that I thought was super creative. So one of their followers and Thug Kitchen responded to this, acknowledged they said it was a great idea that with their publisher, who is Rodale, that they would print new cover sleeves for their books for like $5. And that anyone who wanted to purchase a new cover sleeve with the new brand name and new book cover, they would donate all of those proceeds to moving forward black justice and racial justice and donating to worthy causes. And they said that's a phenomenal idea. So wow. And to be honest, I mean, having spent eight plus years with this brand being successful, I mean, for them, obviously wanting people to keep their books and keep using their books, I assume they want that. I don't know what author wouldn't. I loved that idea also of reprinting the new brand, the new title on a new jacket for the book and then donating those proceeds. I mean, first of all, I think that's a great idea. And to your point though, Whitney, Bryant, I listened to his interview with Evan Kleiman on Good Food on KCRW and I went back and looked at his original article, his op-ed piece on CNN, which we'll link to in the show notes as well at wellevator.com. Back in 2014, he commented on this and he said, you know, at that time, people were like not really giving it much lip service. So he's kind of been linking back to that CNN article. But what I wanted to say, Whitney, is on Bryant's feed and also on Thug Kitchen's feed, people are commenting, don't celebrate them, don't give them a pat on the back, don't give them a cookie. This isn't enough. Them changing their name isn't enough. People are saying and pressuring them to donate all of their revenues to. They didn't use the word reparations, but being implied that for any kind of Black Lives Matter or, like I said, racial injustice, that they donate basically all of the money they've made over the last eight years on the TK brand and donate that. And people are saying, this isn't enough, just changing the name and the brand. We need you to do more. So there's a growing movement of people saying, don't pat them on the back. Don't congratulate them. Don't give them a cookie. They need to step up and donate and get rid of their money and apologize for appropriation. Like, it goes back to the thing you talked about of kind of shame versus cancel culture is it's an interesting thing psychologically, right? I want to pass the baton back to you in a second, Whitney, of do we acknowledge that in the psychology of people changing their behavior and making strides to move forward, we say, excellent, that's amazing. Thank you for apologizing. Thank you for changing. And if you really want to go the next level of empathy and compassion and aligning as allies with the black community, black and brown community, how about you donate this? How about you do this? But instead they're going, don't celebrate them. Don't give them a cookie. Fuck them. They need to do more. And I have a lot of feelings about that. I mean, so do I, of course. And again, like I'm very steeped in researching the psychological impacts of shame and what makes us take action. And I think that it comes down to, A, our own unique way of handling this. I was reading about it recently in one of the books, and I believe that there typically are two types of people, people that, that are driven by rewards, so the cookie, as you 
reference, Jason, like, hey, let me give you a pat on the back. Like some people are driven to get that. Like, oh, I need to be validated. I need to feel good. I need to make money. I need to get whatever it is that you're after. And so once you get that reward, it's very satisfying. And maybe you will stop once you get what you've been looking for. And then some people are driven by punishment, avoiding punishment, right? It's like, I don't want to be criticized, so I'm not going to do. And that's basically, I think, me is that I'm driven by deadlines, for example, because I don't want to get in trouble for missing a deadline. I also like rewards to an extent, but I think I'm more motivated by avoiding negativity, right? So it's kind of like, are you avoiding something bad or are you striving for something good? Yeah, it's the carrot or the stick scenario as they contextualize it. Right. And I think the problem is that when you shame somebody, you don't like if you're using that as a tactic to get them to do something for you, if you don't know how they work psychologically, it's kind of useless because they may not respond to it. And knowing Matt and Michelle on a personal level, I think that when they feel attacked, that actually puts them in defense mode. And I think that's also why it's taken them so long to make a change is that they've been attacked a lot, but they've also received a lot of praise. I mean, I've gone through their comments recently. I don't know if the ratio is exact, but there are a lot of positive comments. There's a lot of people thanking them and saying, thanks for what you're saying. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for making veganism accessible. Thank you for making it enjoyable. And so there's still a lot of positive feedback on them, right? So I guess my point is that we have to consider, and this is not specific to Thug Kitchen, is that just because we want somebody to change, we can't force them to do it our way or on our timeline. We have to know that those people have a lot of work to do personally and professionally. It's not as simple as snapping your fingers and changing your name, especially when you've been working on something for eight years. They have these already published books. They have the domain names. I mean, there is so much work to even that goes into picking a name. You know, like how do you choose something that resonates with you? And do you pick something that sounds similar? Changing your brand, take it from me, because I'm in the process of doing that myself to moving from being known as Eco Vegan Gal to just being Whitney Lauritsen. That's a lot of work that I've been Eco Vegan Gal for many years. And that shift is going to take me many years. Also with us on this podcast, we have the brand Wellivator. We have to spell out the name of our brand every single time to reinforce what it is. It's going to take a long time to build that brand. And so I'm not excusing it, but I believe that Michelle and Matt chose the name Thug Kitchen with good intentions. I really do believe that it may be done out of ignorance and not realizing that what they were doing was going to be offensive. And who knows how long into building that brand they were before people started to criticize them, right? Because it also takes a long time to build up your name recognition to the point where people even care. It might be years until somebody points out that they don't like the name Wellivator, right? Like, I don't know if that'll ever happen. But, you know, let's just say that here we are two years into Wellivator and someone's like, you should really change your name. Like, now we have to go back and change it all this area. And we have to cognitively be ready to change it. We have to agree with that. I mean, I'm just saying <laughs> this is not an easy thing. And it's kind of like your typical armchair expert or the person in the crowd, the trolls, people that are sitting behind a keyboard and telling you to do something that they don't like. 
or to change something because they don't like it, you have to remember it's not that easy. And yes, I can understand the reasonings now more than ever. But I also remember when I used to defend Thug Kitchen because I was ignorant. And I wasn't even attached to the brand in the way that they were, but I truly was ignorant of it. And I remember reading Brian's article and thinking that I could understand his perspective, but I was also pissed off that he was targeting people I knew and cared about. And I remember when Matt and Michelle would talk about their book signing cancellations. They had some of them at at some really wonderful restaurants. They were having some book signings and they got canceled because people were basically protesting Thug Kitchen and insisting that these businesses not support them. And that really was hurtful to Matt and Michelle. And I remember feeling like hurt alongside them. I was like, yeah, like how dare they cancel your book signing? You deserve to have a celebration for your book, right? But I also have to take accountability for the fact that I was ignorant about a lot of things. And I did not know the history of the word thug and the context in which they were using a lot of these terms. And my heart was not fully open to it in the way that it is now. And so for anybody that's saying too little, too late, you haven't been listening. We have to remember that awareness is a long, can take a long period of time. And each of us are awakening to the world around us in different ways, in different timelines. And it cannot be forced because forcing it is often superficial. You could fake it. You could fake that you care. You could fake that you understand. But that's not where real change happens. Real change happens when you really know something. There's that term grok, which is like, in my definition of it, to really understand something on a deep level, on a cellular level. And posting that Black Lives Matter does not mean that you fully grok it, right? Yeah. I think what we're bringing up is this idea that people can evolve, people can change, people can start to empathize and acknowledge and modify their behavior the more that they not just cerebrally understand, as you're saying, Whitney, because anybody can issue an apology and anybody can throw out an Instagram post. I think the way that I kind of perceive it in this whole process of awakening one another and educating one another, if I zoom out on all this, I think that's really what's up right now, you know, with everything that is going on in our society right now. And to me, the aspect of, before I say what I'm going to say, I think it's like not giving people a pass per se, but acknowledging that the analogy I like to use is like looking at a newborn baby. This is the analogy. And getting angry at them or shaming them or getting pissed at them because they're not walking yet. So why aren't you walking? Did you know how to walk yet? The fuck's the matter with you? You've had a whole year to learn how to walk. Why hasn't that been enough? Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> the fuck's the problem? You're not walking yet? You should be walking. And I think that analogy fits because you can't expect someone, anyone, to be on the same level of understanding, compassion, empathy, and perspective as you. And- Look, people are tired, they're emotionally exhausted, they're physically exhausted, and they're out of patience. And I've had a lot of friends in interactions like, I acknowledge that you are exhausted and you are impatient and you want change. Trust me. It's like, I can't even imagine thinking about dealing with that level of violence and oppression and pain and all the lineage stuff that's carried through generation, generation, generation. 
So understanding people's impatience and their desire to accelerate progress and accelerate understanding and accelerate change 100%, but you can't force people to do it. You just can't. And my thing too is like trying to be mindful of a lot of things is people who are making apologies and changes and reparations right now, are they doing it in a way that is going to have a long-term effect in the sense of they're being genuine about wanting to change the course of their behavior, their business practices, what have you? Or are they doing it because of the pressure and the shaming to appease people? Right. Because if they're doing it as an appeasement, that doesn't get to the root of the systemic problems we're having of the oppression and the exclusion and the white privilege and the racism. Like The word systemic means that appeasement or displays or performative acts are not going to change shit about the systemic parts of all this. Like We know that. And so I don't know what Thug Kitchen's intention is to kind of circle back. I don't know if this is going to be them going to another level of this and say, again, donating money or giving out reparations or taking more direct financial or energetic actions beyond changing their name. But the thing that I'm being mindful of with even myself is like, what am I physically doing or how am I contributing my energy in a way that is is positive? And to go back to Bryant's perspective, first of all, I really like Bryant Terry and I love how eloquent and well thought out and just well spoken his research and his perspectives are on the good food thing, the CNN, looking at what he's been posting. I agree. And, and I'm so glad that it was an audio versus a written piece yes. or a written response, yes, which he's done both on his social, as you've seen, Jason. But hearing his voice and his tone really helped me. And I felt like he was really striving, at least in that term. I mean, there's still part of me, honestly, that's like, I hope that he isn't thinking like, see, I told you guys. Like, I hope it's not an ego-based response of like, See, you didn't listen to me six years ago, but now you're listening. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of people respond to them that way. And that to me is triggering because it's like, can we take the ego out of it? And it didn't seem like his ego was there. I think that he's bringing up the reference to his article from six years ago simply to say, like, give it some context. Like, I've been trying to say this for so long, and it's it's a relief to hear people finally acknowledge it and listen to it. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of almost like the Me Too movement, people that are like, you weren't listening to me before when I was telling you that I was harmed by this person, and now you're finally listening. Thank you. But almost like this resentment, like, why didn't you listen to me before? Of course. And I can't fully relate to that in that way. I can't think that I've been through that, but maybe on minute levels. However, aside from that judgment that I had, that maybe Bryant was like a little like, hey, you're finally listening. It's about time. His tone of voice actually made me feel like it's more like he's just acknowledging it and in a relief from it and then finding a very articulate way to explain it to people in a way that they can understand. And I think that's very needed right now is we need people like him that can be educated and share their personal experiences and their perspectives and say, like, this is why it needs to change. And I think he did a beautiful job with that. The other part of it, too, is with Bryant and some other Black leaders, not just in the vegan movement, but I've been turned on to so many new 
black and brown voices the past couple of weeks, which has been very exciting to me because I want to hear people's stories and I want to hear people's perspectives. And one thing that actually two things, number one, you mentioned this, Whitney, the connotation and the meaning and the euphemisms attached to the word thug, like legit, I did not realize the full extent of the connotations of that word and how many, many people feel that in context, it's a euphemism for the N-word. Had no idea, right? Like that was like, wow, like that was an eye-popping moment for me of like, I had no idea that that was a euphemism for the N-word. It was like, damn, okay. Like that added a level of not only understanding, but gravity to that word, really understanding that point. To pause there for a second, as we talked about in the cultural appropriation episode, and for the listener, if you want to listen to that as well, that's kind of an extended version of this. And this is like a part two in some ways. But what I came to realize through that episode was that there is a privilege in our ignorance of those things. There's a privilege in the fact that, hey, I didn't know, and I did something that hurt people's feelings, but I'm innocent because I didn't know, right? Like, Right. I used this word and I didn't realize that word was hurtful, but I can use it anyways because I'm a white person. And it's kind of like we have the privilege of being able to use words in our own context. And like that's the whole point of cultural appropriation. It's taking something from somebody else and using it in our own way without acknowledging that that belongs to somebody else. Okay. Here's the other point I wanted to talk about beyond the really deep understanding of how terminology is used, how terminology is used to oppress. And to your point, people that are not black or brown, white people that are using things without understanding the level of pain or discomfort it's causing other people, right? That's a big shift in our privilege is, is realizing like, hey, I need to be more mindful of how I'm using language and the depth of it, the meaning that's assigned to it. But you talked about appropriation. And one thing too that Bryant, I think, so wonderfully detailed that has given me a different perspective is a digital blackface. And blackface, from what I understand, was white people literally putting on back in the vaudevillian days or, or you know, pre-Hollywood, pre-movies, literally dressing up as black people and imitating them and making fun of them for entertainment value. But now with digital blackface, Bryant was talking about, in the context of Thug Kitchen, proverbially speaking, instead of Matt and Michelle painting their faces black, painting their brand and their messaging black. And I had never heard that terminology until these past couple of weeks of digital blackface. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Again, learning something new. And this might be apples to oranges, but the question I have, and I understand and support Bryant's stance on it and understanding why he explained it and why it's so dangerous in the sense of a white person taking black language, black aphorisms, black vernacular, black style, and then profiting off of it, the question that I have, though, is how far do we take holding people accountable for this? And for me, obviously big into food, and this is a conversation about food and culture and appropriation, but I always go back to music, which is my other big love. And if we're really honest about it, I think about not just, of course, white rappers. You know, I think about probably the most famous white rapper of all time, Eminem from my hometown, Detroit. You know, do we go after Eminem, Marshall Mathers of cultural appropriation? Because he's one of the most rich, successful rappers of all time who took something that was born from urban black youth and took it and made millions on it. Do we hold him accountable? Where do we go? Like, where do we draw the line? And moreover, if we go into the roots of musical history, Whitney, and this is really interesting, you know, we go back to the Library of Congress field recordings from the 20s and the 30s, 
that went around into the South and were recording black blues artists playing their acoustic guitars. We go back into Robert Johnson and we go back to those early, early blues artists, rock and roll, rock music. Dare I say all of popular music, I will make that claim. All of our popular music, the chord progressions, the song structures came from poor, subjugated black people in the South that were creating the blues. They created the blues because what did that come from? That came from the slave hymns. That came from people in the fields being forced to labor, you know, being raped and oppressed and getting the horrible things that happened with slavery. They sang because it was their way to try and free their soul and soothe each other and maintain their African culture, right? So we go all the way back to the blues. We go back to the slave hymns. You can make the case, and I agree with this, that all of our modern popular American music would be fully appropriated from the blues and from slave hymns. And it's an honest question of, in this line of thinking of appropriation, financial appropriation, creative appropriation, all those things like, how do we address this instead of using just Thug Kitchen as an example? How far down the line do we take honoring African Americans and Africans for their contribution to society? And how far down the line do we hold people accountable for that? I'm really curious about it, honestly. I'm curious too. I mean, the same thing goes for dancing. I mean, so much of our dance culture is based on a lot of black dancers and movements and things that they were doing that we kind of took on because they looked cool. And and again, I come from a place of ignorance because I haven't studied that far back. And one of the things that I've been really striving to do is to increase my education. I feel like as somebody who loves to do research and read books and understand people, that's one of the best things that I can do, or at least my starting point is to become more educated. And I encourage everybody to do your best to be educated because a lot of the times we speak out on things that we assume are true or we've been taught were true. And that's part of the issue here is that using words like thug without realizing the historical context, doing a dance move without understanding the historical context, supporting a rapper without understanding like who shaped them and why they are who they are and have they acknowledged that history. It's kind of like if you use a quote and you don't attribute it to somebody and people just assume that you're the one that said it, you have to attribute that. You have to attribute the sources of your information, just like you would in, in scholarly research or a publication. You have to give credit back to where it came from and not take it as your own. And that's part of the issue here too. And then really going and understanding the roots of things. It helps you understand the root of yourself and the root of your parents and the root of the people around you. But the problem is a lot of us don't want to do that education. We are so focused on what's going on in our worlds right now that we don't fully understand the context of it. And I think that's part of the issue with racism. I mean, the one thing I have posted on Instagram, aside from my stories, so if you go into my Eco Vegan Gal account, I have one post addressing. I haven't posted anything since. And the thing that I felt most tied to was the historical timeline of racism in the United States, because that was incredibly eye-opening to me. When I saw it as a graph, seeing how long racism has been going on and how long we've been abusing Black people and the violence and the oppression, that to me was incredibly valuable because this has been going on for way too long. You know, this is goes on far beyond someone like Thug Kitchen, right? I mean, they've been in business for eight years. That's nothing compared to this timeline of hundreds of years in America alone. And 
we need to go back and address those things. We need to see what's been passed on to us in all of the circles of people that have taught us, right? Because there's all these biases. We're biased when we're learning from our teachers because they may choose not to teach us certain things because of their own personal biases, right? Or the school system and how that's structured. Perhaps certain things are kept away from us in a way to protect us or because their belief system and we have religion and there's it's a complicated thing. And I think people get very overwhelmed by that. They don't want to educate themselves. But now we have to. We probably should have for a long time, but now we're being encouraged to in a new way. And I want to be part of that encouragement of pick up a book and understand the history. Go and research the history of this person's whose music you're listening to. You know, who were their influences and who were the influences of that person's influence, right? And really just track it back so that you can at least understand what you're supporting. So I want to bring up something else because, and I'm not doing this to throw anyone under the bus. That's not my intention. I just think touching back on how deep and how far do we go in terms of examining credit and respect and apologies and appropriations. And this is a deep conversation that I'm interested in continuing to have outside of this podcast. I remember when Moby's biggest album, Play, came out in the late 90s, came out in 99. He was the first artist in history at that time to license every single one of the tracks on that album for commercial use. So he's not only making money off of the album sales and touring and merch, but Moby, to my understanding, made a lot of money by selling each one of those tracks and making it available for commercial licensing and advertising. But I remember a lot of the samples that Moby created in his songs on that album were from, I believe, that that Library of Congress recordings and were not covered by copyright. So a lot of the blues songs that he used, and there's actually some articles that I looked up about Moby Black Appropriation and White Electronica, talking about the history of the Beatles and Elvis and rock and roll artists that took Black music and made millions on it. So Moby on this album on play sampled a lot of these Southern blues recordings from the 20s and 30s. But I remember reading more articles that the families of these blues artists were trying to sue Moby because they received zero compensation for these singers that he had sampled from these early blues recordings. And this whole Thug Kitchen situation brings up a lot of those memories of reading those articles years ago about Moby, go back and look at the articles, not wanting to pay these families for those use of those recordings. And probably because he could get away with it, you know, and that's part of white privilege yes. as well. Yes. It's a power balance. It's saying like, well, if I can get away with something, I'm going to get away with it. And a lot of times, one of the big elements of white privilege is that because of the power we have, in essence, get away with doing things like that, that might not be good. And again, without speaking to Moby directly, we don't know what the context of why he did that. Did Was he ignorant of it? Was it, a, you know, was he... I mean, this is actually part of the thing that came up, and I think Bryant mentioned this, is, yeah, he did mention this in his KCRW talk, which was, it wasn't just an issue with Matt and Michelle, it was an issue with their publisher. 100%. This is something I brought up too in the cultural appropriation episode, because the whole reason we did that episode was based on an email I received about the name of one of the recipes in my book. And something I said, and I'll say again now is, I'll take personal responsibility and acknowledge that a lot of my decisions were made out of ignorance, 
But what about the editors? What about the people that looked at my book as well? And why did they not catch something? Why didn't they see it as cultural appropriation? And I think they're learning too, because I've since learned that the publisher that I worked with on that book is taking strides to be very mindful about how they name recipes versus like perhaps using a term that would be part of cultural appropriation. So what Bryant said about Thug Kitchen is that why didn't anybody on the Thug Kitchen team stop it? And part of the reason may be that there are a lot of white people working in the publishing business, right? There are a lot of white people working and having positions of power in a lot of different businesses. And I'm sure the same is true with the music business. That maybe somebody in the music business said, hey, Moby, it's okay. You can do this. Like, don't worry about it. It's, it's legal. Who knows who else was on the side of him? It wasn't solely Moby's decision. I'm guessing. I could be wrong. But my point is, like, we can't assume that one person is solely responsible for something because when it comes to business, there's usually multiple people. But if all those people are white, if all those people are in positions of power, then that often can be part of the reason that these things happen. I think that's the system. Yes. This is the system we're talking about, is that there was a really interesting image that I reposted on Instagram earlier this week about looking at the statistics of people in the most powerful positions of our society, of billionaires, CEOs, Wall Street executives, owners of professional sports teams, owners of ad agencies. And without exception, except for maybe one line item, there was perhaps 15 to 20 aspects of these positions in society. They were all white people were in the 90th percentile of most of these positions. Again, billionaires, executives, Wall Street types. I mean, the people who are really wielding senators, Congress people, judges. And so if we talk about the roots of systemic oppression and systemic racism, well, it makes complete sense because if you have a very myopic viewpoint of a specific type of person, aka mostly white males, like let's bring that to the conversation. Like white men are in most of these fucking positions then of course you have a system that continues to perpetuate itself because you have no new perspectives and you have no new senses of compassion. And if these white men who are predominantly in the 90th percentile in positions of power in our society, from the government to economics to law to everything, then unless someone is going to have a tidal shift in their awareness and their action and their consciousness and their empathy, and again, you know, thousands of people in these positions of white power as men, changing the system becomes nearly impossible without new voices and new hearts and new cultures and new perspectives, right? So part of changing the system, or rather maybe even dismantling it, I'm going to go so far as to say removing white people and white men from their positions of power. And you know, people say, oh, well, that's anti-capitalist and that's unfair and they earned it and they deserved it. Mm, that's a sweeping generalization. I mean, as an example, if we were to tax the wealthiest 1%, the billionaires, and do a 90% tax on their income, could they still live a good life? Yeah, let's say someone's earning a billion dollars a year and we tax them 90%. They're only making 100 million a year. I don't think anyone's going to cry about that. This is a long rant. If I was in charge, that'd be one of the first things I would do, right? And then reappropriate that money into education, reappropriate that money into reimagining our police force or defunding the police. 
putting that towards healthcare to people that are underprivileged, maybe starting a universal basic income. So those that are most at risk, black and brown people in our society, have a monthly universal basic income. I'm going on a massive rant, but these are some of the things I believe in. But to your point, Whitney, the record executives, the publishers, the CEOs, the executives, if they're mostly white men, what the fuck is going to change? Because it's the same parroting of ideas and ideologies and beliefs over and over and over again. We go back to this is not an easy change. We see this in our government too, right? I mean, we see a lot of older white men in power. So what about the female energy? Well, we've had more women enter into the government, but it's still not quite enough. And there's still a power struggle between men and women. And this is true with a lot of businesses. Getting more women into position of power is really important, but we also need that diversity. We need different backgrounds and different voices, different cultures involved in these things. We need more of the equality and the just the overall justice here of making sure that it's not so biased ultimately, right? We need to have different perspectives here in order to have more equality. And that's going to take some time. It's not just snapping your fingers and making it happen. And also, just because somebody who's black is in a position of power doesn't mean that that person is a good person. And it doesn't mean that they're not influenced by people that are white, right? I mean, we had Obama in office and he still did things that not everybody agrees with. And that's perhaps due to him as a person. Just because he's black doesn't mean that he's perfect, right? Doesn't mean he's going to make all the right decisions and that he's doing good for all of the black people in the world, you know, or the country. And we also have to remember that just because he's black doesn't mean that he's not surrounded by white people, right? I mean, from my understanding, there's still a huge majority of people in the government are white and male. So, it's that progressive change that we have to make here. We need to have more balance. We need to be more educated. And I think that comes down to our work as white allies. And that's something that I'm really working towards is I may not be able to change the color of my skin, but that doesn't mean that I can't contribute in as many positive ways as possible by educating myself and to getting involved with that. And I think that's also where change happens is that we have to be willing to change as individuals, regardless of our backgrounds. We have to be willing to be less ignorant, to be more educated, to apologize, to let go of our ego. And that's part of the reason I feel like what Thug Kitchen is doing is actually a bigger step than more people are giving them credit for, because it takes a lot to be able to admit mistakes and be willing to make changes. And that, to me, deserves a lot of recognition. And it's only been a few weeks of this big push towards them, even though people have been saying things for years. I think that we have to recognize that the shift is happening right now. The pressure is on and the awakening is happening in a way that it just hasn't before. And sometimes it takes that big push in order for changes to happen. I'm certainly seeing this within myself. Would I want somebody to come and say, again, coming back to what I said earlier, I do not respond well to shame. When somebody says, Whitney, you're not doing enough. I mean, this actually happened when I put out that cultural appropriation episode. That was a lot of work for me. That was a tough conversation for me to have. I don't necessarily need a pat on the back, but having somebody come and say, well, that's not good enough, that is not helpful to me. That actually makes me feel small. That makes me not want to move. That makes me want to give up. That makes me feel like I'm not good enough. That causes me to be less active 
Then when somebody says to me, when you're doing a good job, you still have a ways to go, but good job. It kind of reminds me of like a marathon. Yeah. Do you think of somebody, they know they have a long road ahead of them. And there's a reason why people gather on the sidelines to cheer them on. Can you imagine if you had hecklers when you were trying to run a marathon and someone was saying, (laughs) you've run 10 miles, but hey, you still have a long way to go. And this isn't good enough. You can't stop now. You got to keep, you know, like. Your pace is too slow. Exactly. Pick it up. Pick it up. Pick it up. I can't believe you're drinking water. I can't believe you're pausing to use the bathroom. Like, how dare you do this? Why aren't you running as fast as the person in front of you? Like, can you imagine trying to finish a marathon if all you heard was hecklers along the way? And then what if you crossed the finish line and the first thing someone said to you was like, yeah, you crossed the finish line, but you still need to run more. You need to run faster next time. Like if that was all you heard after you accomplished something that was big for you, do you really feel like you would be motivated to keep going? Maybe. Again, it it depends on how you process information. But I know for myself, when I accomplish something, I really respond well to praise or constructive criticism, but I do not respond well to somebody telling me that it wasn't good enough. That is like the opposite of what I need to hear. And that is for me. Again, we have to each come at it from where we're at, and we have to recognize that our perspectives, our knowledge, our experiences are different than other people. We have to meet each person with where they're at. We need to do our best to have compassion for them and to understand who they are and how they work. I think that's also a huge part of this conversation. We can't assume that we're all the same. We want to have equality, but equality is about everybody being respected for who they are and where they're at, not trying to make us all the same. It's treating people the same, not trying to force them to be the same. I think it's also reserving your resources for people that are open to change and open to evolution and open to transformation. Because sometimes I find that whether it's a conversation about racial justice, equality, trans rights, gay rights, black rights, women's rights, animal rights, earth rights, the things that I am very passionate in advocating, but also learning about, right? Is if I get a sense that someone is completely shut down and not open to really receiving those perspectives on you know, why I feel that, again, all the sentient beings I mentioned are worthy of love and protection and respect and safety and having a platform to speak their voice. But if someone's like, no, 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 I actually, I don't believe that women are equal to men or black people or brown people or animals or the earth has rights. Like, you know, I come across someone who's just completely shut down. I'm not going to spend my energetic or heart resources on that person trying to convince them of shit. But I think that if we acknowledge that people are genuinely open to expanding their awareness, their understanding, their empathy, extending respect and equal rights, and all the things that we're we're collectively, I think, fighting for in our own ways. It's not to say, again, you deserve a cookie, you performed well. But to your point, Whitney, I think that psychologically, if people realize that they're at least being acknowledged for their efforts, and one can make suggestions for doing more beyond that, But I think that, to your point, if we do things in a punitive way, in a shaming way, in a way of, hey, you didn't actually do shit, you still have more to do, as you were saying, I think the marathon analogy you had was a great one. I'm very much 
mirroring you in the sense that if someone comes at me and says like, I love that you showed up this way or this was cool what you did, but hey, have you considered doing X, X, and X? Have you considered donating here or standing with these people or did you know about this issue? And if someone's coming at it, not like trying to hand me cookies or like, you're, oh, great job, but hey, this was cool and have you ever thought about this? I do feel it's way more constructive and I'm more receptive than someone's like, yeah, we don't believe you. You're a piece of shit. That doesn't motivate me to stay open. Well, I think this also comes back to something we've talked about in a number of episodes, which is the four tendencies and how there are four different types of people, according to Gretchen Rubin, or, or the tendencies that each person is. And it's a framework for understanding how somebody takes action in their life. How do they respond to things? And Jason shared that he's a rebel, which means that he's resisting expectations outer and inner. Rebels do what they want in the way that they want to do them and when they want to do them. And they need to act from a source of feeling free and having choice and self-expression. And when someone else gets a rebel to try to do something, a rebel's going to resist it. That's right. And I bet you that Matt and Michelle are rebels, knowing them. <laughs> like, And so it makes Matt and Michelle from Thug Kitchen, right? So knowing that, I think that that's why they've been resistant to this. And again, I'm actually just making an assumption. I don't know if what Matt and Michelle would identify from, but I'm assuming this. If they are, in fact, rebels, then when somebody keeps saying, you have to do this, like this is the way, this is the only way, a rebel is going to resist that. And so the more that we can understand who we're talking to, the easier it is to communicate with them. And for me as a questioner, that means that I'm someone who's questioning expectations. I want to know why I should do something. And once I understand that, I will have a deeper commitment to it because my framework is based on logic and efficiency. I want to have more information. I want to have justifications. I want to feel motivated to do something. And that takes me a while to process it. That's part of the reason I've been having trouble posting online is because I'm really trying to collect that information so that I can come at it from a place of deep understanding and alignment. And what's tough about the state that we're in right now is there's so much shame around saying and doing things right or wrong. And when you see somebody like Thug Kitchen being shamed a lot, it can actually have a ripple effect for somebody like me who's like, oh my gosh, like look at them. They're getting so much shame. I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to get that shame too. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that right now is they're afraid to say something, to post something, to do something because that criticism and the shame is so rampant right now. And there are also a few different, two other types of tendencies, these personality types. The other is upholder which means that they're a person that's really good at meeting inner and outer expectations. They thrive under rules and expectations. They're keeping their resolutions without much of a problem. And so those people are probably thriving right now. They're seeing like all of these like cultural expectations being put out there. And they're probably the ones that are posting a lot right now because People are telling them what to do and they're doing it without even questioning it. They're doing it without that resistance that a rebel and a questioner would have. And then the fourth type is an obliger and they're easily meeting outer expectations. They're doing things on time. If people are counting on them, 
they're going to make it happen, but they really struggle with inner expectations. So if this person is basing everything on what other people are saying, it's very easy for them to make those actions, but they might be struggling internally because they're not quite sure how they feel about things. So it's just really interesting. This is a framework that you can use when you're trying to communicate and understand people. And instead of just making assumptions that we're all the same, we all think the same, we act the same, we can step back and say like, all right, if this person's a rebel, how can I communicate them in a way that they'll actually hear me versus resist me? (sighs) (laughs) I mean, I sigh because I think what you're talking about, Whitney, is a level of, wow, it's a level of such nuance and the art of conversation of if we were to have these deeper levels of understanding who we're talking to, and it's so hard on social media. Before we respond to someone, are we going to say, hey, you know, which type are you? Have you read Gretchen Rubin's work here? You know, <laughs> like it's not realistic, especially no. on the level of, say, what's going on with Thug Kitchen and Bryant Terry and all of the social commentary around digital blackface and cultural appropriation this entire episode. But my point is, if you learn about the four tendencies, then you actually can make educated assumption about somebody else, right? Like you can see the signs in their behavior that may indicate to you what type of tendencies they are. And then you can kind of evaluate fairly quickly how to communicate with them effectively and test it out. This doesn't mean you're going to get it right unless you ask them what type, you know, (laughs) but I'm saying like that you can use that information as a communication skill. I think that there's also a balance here between really listening to public opinion, listening to people's perspectives, listen to their heartfelt pleas for justice and equality and recognition. And especially, you know, people of color right now bringing to light, hey, we've felt this way for millennia, for generations, and here's why. And being hopefully listened to and acknowledged and having action taken on their behalf more than there has been the last 400 years plus. My point was that I think for me, it's important with any kind of movement online to remain open, but also to really stay in the mode of trusting your intuition and listening to yourself. And I say that because I think whenever there is outrage over something big, and we saw this with COVID, right? We're seeing it right now with Black Lives Matter, is when there's a lot of outrage over something, there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon and say, yeah, I agree with that too. Yeah, yes, yes. Whatever the perspective is, whether it's pro, con, for, against, there's conspiracy theory, there's not. I mean, as many perspectives on all of these things as there are people on the internet, there's so many perspectives. I'm trying to be in the mode, more than adding my voice too much to the conversation, sitting back and learning and watching and seeing how I feel about things. Because the last thing that I want to do is jump on an outrage bandwagon, per se. And listen, I'm not saying rage is inappropriate. I'm not saying anger isn't. It's all appropriate. Anybody's response authentically to something they're experiencing, especially in the face of all the things we've been talking about, the deep systemic injustices. I'm just saying that with the deluge of perspectives and information, and you should do it this way, you shouldn't do it that way, this is real, that's not real. There's so much information and perspective and ought to's and should do's and shouldn't do's that I feel like the only thing is to like, I want to stay open-minded, open-hearted, but ultimately trust my gut, trust my intuition on things. Because 
There's a lot of people with a lot of agendas and a lot of misinformation. There's just so much of all of it, Whitney, that, yeah, I think for me, I want to stay open and learn and listen, but I also have to trust myself. And if something feels like bullshit and if something feels like an agenda and if something feels not right to me, I'm not going to jump on that bandwagon. One thing that I initially planned to bring up in this episode, which feels like something we can touch upon today and explore more in future episodes, is the health effects of racism and how it can cause emotional and mental harm to us. And there is an article that I read in CNN that it's actually very short, so I'm going to read most of it. And I'll also link to it in the show notes at wellevator.com. So for you, the listener, if you go to wellevator.com, there's show notes for all of our episodes. And anything we've referenced today, Bryant Terry's interviews and op-eds and whatever else that we've touched upon, other episodes we've referenced, that's all going to be there for you to find it very easily and make it more accessible for you when you're ready. And in this article from CNN, they talk about how racism is a health problem that takes a toll on people of color and contributes to the development of other chronic diseases. Structural racism causes emotional and mental harm. Sustained exposure to racism in all of its forms increases our stress hormones, such as cortisol, which causes havoc on our physical bodies. And while we know no race is a construct, a social construct, and has no biological and genetic basis, racism can actually literally change the patterns of how genes are expressed. So whether we're talking about more people dying of COVID or at the hands of the police, Racism is ultimately the disease. Social disparities, including lower incomes, crowded housing, and lack of medical insurance are all contributing factors in the higher number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in minority communities. The loss that we're seeing in COVID is a symptom of institutional and structural racism, and it's the manifestation of it versus the actual core reason. It's really fascinating here to talk about police brutality and how it's probably the most reprehensible symptom of the disease of racism in this country and the most obvious. And it's time to recognize and call upon all of our institutions of medicine to denounce police violence as a public health threat. And this trauma is actually playing a role in causing chronic health conditions and how the driving of low-grade inflammation is associated with all of the diseases that plague black and brown people and indigenous people in a more impactful way from heart disease to depression, obesity, and diabetes. And even just witnessing violence is impacting a person's physical and mental well-being. So this is a really important thing to pay attention to and why I think it's increasingly important that we address this, that we have conversations around this, that we're aware of these things. And it's an, another element of white privilege as well, is that health is a privilege in general, but it's not equal. Our health is impacted by our genetics. It's impacted by where we're living, the people around us, what we have access to, the money that we have, our government. There's so many elements of it. And Jason and I are big advocates for overall health and we're going to continue to do what we can to stay educated so that we can support you, the listener, from an emotional, mental, and physical level. I also want to comment on something I'm particularly passionate about in this conversation, Whitney, about the systemic oppression in terms of health and wellness. 
And I want to say this from my perspective, having grown up in the city of Detroit, having lived in when I was in college on the south side of Chicago, living right now in a brown neighborhood in Los Angeles, where I'm one of the very, very few white people. I think I'm actually the only white person on my block. And I've noticed also in traveling, you know, you and I have both had great privilege and blessing to travel a lot for our work. But in particular, being in Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, and living in black and brown and multi-ethnic neighborhoods, that access to healthy, good, organic, affordable food is still a challenge. And this idea of food justice and food deserts is still an extremely relevant part of this conversation about the death rates and the disease rates and the lack of access to food is you go to a lot of neighborhoods in downtown Detroit near where I grew up or south side of Chicago or here in LA. It's tough to find good, healthy food. It's really hard. And you see a disproportionate number of liquor stores and fast food restaurants, and you barely see any places to access. And when I say barely, they're there, but it's disproportionate, again, in the number of liquor stores and fast food restaurants to places that offer affordable fresh produce, places like farmer's markets or places that have affordably priced organic resources, or even just fresh local produce. So it's still something that there are outposts. For instance, Eastern Market in downtown Detroit, I think is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, farmer's markets in the entire country. That's still going on. But by and large, way too many barbecue joints, way too many fast food restaurants, way too many liquor stores, too much access to inflammatory, acidic, toxic foods that are killing people. Now, why is that a problem? It's not just the restriction of access to healthy, affordable foods, but it's another layer deeper in, I think, the food oppression structure of the fact that our federal government is still giving massive, massive millions and millions of dollars of subsidies to what? The animal agriculture industry. Well, who thrives on the animal agriculture industry? The fast food corporations, right? So they're getting a fixed price. It's an illusory price. When you go to McDonald's, Hardee's, Burger King, KFC, blah, 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 the price that you pay for a value meal is not the actual price of that food. That's the price that has been offset by the millions of dollars of lobby and subsidies that continue in the federal government to offset the cost of not just animal agriculture and slaughterhouses, but cheaply grown genetically modified corn, wheat, soy, and oats that are fed to the animals. So we have to understand that the systematic oppression and the food justice is not just restricting access, but it's artificially modifying prices to make toxic, destructive food cheap to the economically oppressed black and brown people because that's all they can afford. And it is fucked on so many levels. We certainly have a lot of passion for this, and there are a lot of topics that we will continue to explore throughout the episodes. And in full transparency... One thing that Jason and I have been working on as we develop this podcast is working with sponsors and brands. And we had had an intention <laughs> to uh, mention one of them with this episode, and it just did not feel like the right time to pause. Usually we will mention a brand or a sponsor. Sometimes we partner with brands and what are called affiliate programs, which means that we recommend a product. And uh, if you purchase something based on a recommendation, we may receive a commission from it. And one of the brands we are going to mention today is called Rapid Release. And I'm going to talk about them now and, and just be transparent with you, the listener, since you've made it this far in this episode and how we structure things. And money is such a delicate thing, right? 
Jason and I really want to continue doing this podcast. And, you know, it takes money to make this a priority and to buy the equipment and invest a lot of things. That's part of the reason that we have a Patreon and a way for you to give back to us as we try to give back to you as much as possible. And so I think what, Jason, if you think this is a good idea, what we'll do is we want to provide as many resources for you as possible. And that's part of the reason we have the show notes at wellevator.com. And we've been creating a lot of free resources. So if you go to our website, you can download free PDFs and videos where you can learn more about well-being. And in this episode and future episodes, we'll be talking about some of the different resources that you have. And Rapid Release is a brand that makes one of our favorite devices for personal care, which is massage. And just the stress that can come up in these conversations, we need to relieve it in some way or another. It can build up in our body in such an uncomfortable way. And so while we won't go nearly in depth about it as we were planning to, I'm just going to mention them now in transparency so you know what to expect from us in future episodes. So as we dive into these conversations, we'll be weaving in brands that we love. You can learn more about them on the website. You can get discounts from us. So for example, with Rapid Release, we'll put the link to them. We'll share the discount codes with you. And we're very committed to helping you find the most affordable ways to take care of your well-being. Because these are tough times and a lot of us are suffering, not just on an emotional and mental level, but we're struggling a lot physically. And that's a holistic thing, right? So Jason's talking about food here and finding accessible food and affordable food. So we'll link to resources where we can learn more about that. And throughout our website, we'll link to as many discounts and affordable things as we possibly can and brands that we love. And, you know, we may mention brands that are pricey, like Rapid Release is an investment in your health. Our favorite brands are organic and they tend to be a premium. You know, I think this ties into what you were just saying, Jason, too, is sometimes we think things are really cheap and we buy things because we feel like we can't afford to pay more for them. But there's a long-term effect. One of our favorite phrases is you pay with your purse or you pay with your person. And it's really sad that things are set up structurally where things are seemingly affordable, but they have a long-term ripple effect on us. So I aim to make things as accessible financially, but also we want to keep you in the loop about when we feel passionate about investing your money whenever you can. And there's often creative ways to afford things like Rapid Release, for example, has a payment plan that's incredibly affordable, so you don't have to pay for it all up front. And I think that's one thing I encourage each of you to think about when it comes to investing in your physical, mental, and emotional well-being is like, are you buying something just because it's cheap and affordable right now? Or can you maybe see if you can get creative with things and find ways to get access to things that may not be presented to you initially, right? Like sometimes we just see a price tag and we think, well, that's not for me. I can't afford that. Or that's not something that's for who I am. That's made for somebody who's in a different position in their life or doesn't look like me or whatever. We make a lot of assumptions. I think that's part of the issue we need to address now with health is that there's a lot of misconceptions about what's for us. And that's made for somebody else. That's not made for me. Or I don't deserve that. That can be a level too. And Part of what I want to do is unravel these misconceptions that we have about health and make it more accessible on an emotional level, too. 
like maybe you're just used to going to fast food restaurants because that's all you see around you. But maybe there's other things that are available to you either in your neighborhood or online that you just haven't even sought out. So I just want to sprinkle that in that Jason and I are committed to introducing you to all types of different resources and finding ways to make them accessible for you. And if you ever have questions about things that we bring up and why we are advocate for them, I'm trying to open up my mind as much as possible to the different positions that people are in and not assume that just because I like something or I can afford something that everybody can afford it, if that makes sense. You know, like when you bring up this organic thing, Jason, it's like, I'm very passionate about organic living. But a lot of people see that word and they think, well, that means it's expensive. But to your point, Jason, just because something is cheap at McDonald's doesn't mean that it's actually cheap. We just don't know what the whole financial structure is. And we have to keep that in mind too. Like if we're supporting a small business, it might be more expensive to support a small business, but there's a reason for that because it might not be subsidized, you know? So Jason, you feel free to chime in. I know that you're probably just trying to be polite, but I'd love to hear your opinion <laughs> on this too. It's yeah. like, I just want to be transparent with the listener about what we support and why we support it. We do so much research on all of these brands that we recommend to you. And I also want to be transparent that we're running a business as well with this might get, it costs us money to make these episodes. You know, we have to pay for the, the software that we use and the people that are editing this and the equipment that we buy. And, and so we're looking for ways to support you and support ourselves so that we can continue spreading this message. And that's uh, often why we bring up things like Patreon so that if you want to chip in a few dollars. That makes a huge difference for us. Or if you want to buy a product that we recommend, use the links that we have on our website or the discount codes that we share with you because that supports you and us simultaneously. And just to know that we're doing our very best to recommend things to you that are great for your long-term well-being. And we want to see each and every one of you thrive. I want to just kind of chime in on that, Whitney, in twofold is I love, you know, this idea of acknowledging where people are at in terms of their level of ability to invest in themselves, but that's a big word that I approach and I've always approached my health and wellness is looking at it as an investment. We usually hear investments in terms of right finances or saving money or putting it in the stock market, but this was kind of born from a philosophy that my mother Susan, I think she really instilled in me in a very young age which was instead of buying the cheapest thing you can with what means you have, try and invest in something that is going to bear long-term fruit. And mind you, I was raised by a single mom in the city of Detroit who worked three jobs at a time. We were not rolling in the dough, okay? But my mom, even with her limited financial means, with me raising me, her philosophy was, I'm going to get the best of what I can leverage my money that I have. Because as an example, right? One of the biggest things, because I'm a huge car guy, and this is also related to health and wellness though, is you know, rather than spending whatever, $5,000 on this car, if you can stretch a little bit and spend say 7,000, 7,500, borrow the money, you know, figure it out, even with limited means, that deeper level of investment is going to probably ensure that that more reliable car is going to last you longer, right? So food is the same thing. I mean, with whatever means that we have, you know, Whitney and I are both very passionate about not only endorsing and bringing to you the brands that we love and the products we have used and the things that we champion because we've experienced them. 
that's a part of huge integrity for both of us is we're not going to promote things that we haven't used or experienced directly in our own lives. But beyond that is this idea of investing in yourself that you spend a little bit more than you think you can and you buy something of higher quality, higher reliability, higher yield, whether that's your health, your wellness, your physiology, your mental health. I think that philosophy of investing in yourself and buying something of higher quality that's going to last you. To me, that's a philosophy I've lived by ever since I was a little kid through my mom. And I still live by that to this day, even with limited financial means. Absolutely. And we're trying our best. We're learning every single episode and committed to tapping into who you are as a listener. And we'd really love to hear from you because this podcast is just about to hit the six month mark. And there's so much more that we need to learn. And so we'd love to hear from you. As we say at the end of most of our episodes, we'd love to hear from you publicly or privately. So you can reach us on social media, which is at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can send us an email or a direct message to reach us privately. Our email is hello at wellevator.com. And you can find that once you go to the website, click the contact button. We're here to hear from you. And we want to have you part of the conversation. And as we talk about these things, we're trying to keep in mind our own perspectives and our own privileges. You know, in talking about rapid release, our aim today was like, we really want to encourage you to take good care of your body and your muscles and release any of that tension that you're holding. Because man, just every time we hear each other sigh on this podcast, it's like, these are heavy subject matters, you know, and a lot of us don't do good things for our bodies, let alone exercise. But with exercise, we need to release our muscles and eating well. We need to move our digestion, our organs around. I mean, there's so many benefits of something like a massage. And so we want to talk about these things, but also be mindful that they're expensive and they're investments in yourself. So I want to make that transparent that there's a reason we recommend things, but we want to be aware of your own financial situation. So I just hope that you know that we're doing our very best to speak to you And we want to hear from you so that we can learn more about how we can, you know, who you are so that we know who we're talking to, basically. And we hope that we bring a diverse audience of people. We hope that we're not just talking to other white people all the time or other people around our age range. We hope that we're talking to all sorts of different people with this podcast and they're listening and they feel included and that we never come across as like privileged white people that can afford to invest in their health. So I wanted to open that up here and just be really transparent about who we are, where we're at, why we do things and remind you that we care a lot. And, you know, as we talk about these brands and upcoming episodes, being mindful of recommending things that really resonate with you, too. And we'd love to hear your feedback. So I think that's a good place to end today is just thanking you and encouraging you to be part of the conversation and learning how to communicate more effectively and being mindful about the people that you're communicating with and to continue to educate yourself as much as possible. Know that we're right here along with you, whether we're educating the current state of things in the world or we're educating the emotional, physical, and mental sides of well-being. We are all in this together. We cherish your input. We're always open to new topic ideas and explorations and anything that you want to share with us. We just want to make this podcast as valuable as possible to you. So thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 
Thank you, Jason, for exploring this with me too. I know that you were a bit resistant to it, <laughs> but we dove in, we got through it, and uh, it's just all a piece of the big puzzle at play here. That is absolutely true. And so whatever resistance or hesitance, I think diving in is a good MO for life. And on that subject, I've been holding my pee for like 45 minutes. And I don't know why I felt the need to share that. Maybe TMI, maybe not, but. Or maybe the name rapid release. You're like, I need to go rapidly release. <laughs> it was subliminal. I was like, yeah, speaking of rapid release, doing the pee pee dance. You can't see it because it's a podcast, <laughs> but I'm doing the pee pee dance. And on that note, dear listener, thank you for being here with us as we grow as we encourage each other to grow. And we will be back with another episode very soon. We love you and appreciate you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 